I want to start with the um, a Pinkerian distinction between habitus and habitus. I'm going to start today by talking, going over again and, and moving on from the difference between infused moral virtues and acquired moral virtues. I think the difference is interesting. Uh, and then I'll talk, move into talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, according to Aquinas. First point I want to make uh, is uh, some point I should have made more uh, at greater length yesterday, and that is a Pinkerian point that habitus is not the same thing as habit. When we use the word habit today, we are talking about mechanical, unthinking repetition of behavior. So I have a habit of smoking. Okay, so that means I'm, it's uh, midnight, I'm at my desk, a paper is due very shortly, and I've read what I've written, and it's less than brilliant, and I have got to come up with something fast. What do I do? I take a cigarette. Did I think about that? No. Um, did I do it? Well, in a way, um, I did it because it's what I always do, but I, uh, the behavior is kind of um, woven a place, a path in my brain, and my brain is the source of repetitive behavior. Not a lot of thought goes into taking the cigarette in that situation, right? That's a habit, okay? And it, as such, tends to diminish the voluntary. Now, suppose you've got a boatload of habits, uh, are you, uh, and they're good habits, uh, you know, are, the, are you more or less moral because of that? Uh, quite, uh, there's a good strong argument to be made that in many ways you'd be less moral because of that, because you're, you're not thinking about what you're doing, you're behaving, you're not really acting. See, there's a difference. So the more you have, you go on automatism in your behavior, even if they are, even if the automatisms are healthy rather than bad, even if they are, they lead you to take grapefruit juice rather than coffee, um, or gum rather than cigarettes, they still are not the stuff of which the kingdom of God is made. Uh, repetitious behavior, as such, isn't virtuous. It's not for that reason, what we would call a habitus. A habitus is different because a habitus uh, it has an entirely different relationship to appropriated reasons, okay? If a habit is moved mostly by efficient causation, you know, a push from behind, a habitus is drawn from a distance. A habitus really operates more by final causes. Another way of putting this is that a habitus, which is the source of, a, which is another name for virtue, if it takes a good direction, a habitus really responds to reasons as causes. You see, okay. So where was I? I was talking about habitus and um, its relationship to uh, reason, appropriated reason. Uh, this, the background behind this, is a, a commonplace distinction between a reason and a cause, right? Uh, if you make an absolute distinction between a reason for doing something and a cause for doing something, uh, you could look at it, um, you're going to the store, you're going to buy some detergent, right? So you, uh, uh, your reason for going to the store is you need detergent, it's time to do your laundry. Um, what causes you to move to the, uh, the the, the corner store. Well, if you're kind of a determinist and you're looking for efficient causation, you'd look to something like brain states to explain. Uh, a reason is not a cause, you see. 
uh, in that sense, that way of thinking about things. Uh, so that if you have a reason for something, according to this way of looking at things, that reason cannot be the cause of what you've done. A cause is not a reason, a reason is not a cause. My intuition on this is that St. Thomas would deny that. That, that, that. When you talk about causes for him, you're talking in the realm of uh, analogical causation. You've got efficient causes, of course, but then you've got material and formal causes, and final causes, which are reasons to do something, you see. My point is this, that when you've got uh, the reason or the idea for a pattern of behavior, which is a good reason, over time, what happens is that these reasons become part of your very self, okay? They, and they, therefore, they become a resource for action. So you're married, and you have a habit of fidelity to your spouse. You do not go spilling all your dark secrets to the people you work with. You come home, and you share that with your spouse, nobody else, you see? You share your life with your spouse, with nobody else, and in that way, anyway. Now this is something that you've thought about, and that has motivated many different kinds of action. It has motivated you to stay by a bedside when there was sickness. It has motivated you to hold your tongue when the story has been told for the 17th time this weekend. <laughs> you see, you hold your tongue. And the same thing motivates you to uh, go out of your way to um, do some housework, you know. Uh, these are all different kind of behaviors, aren't they? Housework, silence, listening, uh, bedside care. They, they're all different kinds of behaviors, but in a way they all come from a reason. This is my wife, you say. This is my husband, you say. This is a reason for mm -hmm. acting. And that same fidelity can motivate or be a, a reason to go to the store, uh, sit by the bedside, hold your tongue, and uh, a welcome in-laws, see? All of the, sa the same reason can be behind all of these actions, and that reason is not distinct from yourself. The more you become habituated, the more these reasons for acting, these good reasons for acting, become part and parcel, woven into the very substance of yourself, see? So you think of St. Thomas More, for example, um, and you know, the film, A Man for All Seasons, and he's, uh, he's talking about his faith, okay, and, and uh, the Pope as the successor of St. Peter, right, and he's talking to his friend Norfolk, and as Norfolk says, why can't you come along with us for convenience, and, and Thomas More says, uh, because I believe it. No, not that I believe it, but that I believe it. I now, you could look at that as an early piece of modern individualism, <laughs> but that's not really what he's after, do you see? That's not what he's, he's not an early individualist saying anything is true because I think it's true, so there. He's not saying that. He's saying that his fidelity to Christ, as expressed in fidelity to the successor of St. Peter, is not something optional for him, it's something that is person-defining for him, you see? And so the reasons for acting become person-defining, and insofar as the person is the reason or the cause of the action, these reasons become causes of action. Does that make sense? The reason becomes a cause, the appropriated, and for that reason, because precisely it is a reason that is appropriated, 
it has flexibility to it. It isn't mechanical repetition of behavior. It allows for flexibility. So if you really, just on a more mundane level, you have the idea of chess strategy, the very virtue of being able to play chess well allows you to be flexible, to adapt, to be creative. Virtue is creative, not blindly repetitive. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. I, I'm going to drop the point, but yes. Can you uh, just repeat what, one more time what you said about habitus and being woven into our being? Yes, habits are woven into our being. Uh, <laughs> 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 okay. uh, but but, I mean, but they become a part of you. You know, yes. uh, yeah. uh, they, uh, Thomas More is not really conceivable apart from his fidelity to okay. the, uh, the the vicar of Christ on earth, okay. fidelity to the faith. Uh, he's, uh, he's not a guy who happened to uh, enjoy fowl rather than game for, for, for dinner. I mean, those were characteristics of him, but what made him be who he was was his the courage and fidelity. This is a, a person-shaping reality, which then, and since a person is a cause of an action, his reasons for acting, the, the, the thing that would grip his mind and heart, caused his action. And just as a person is permanent, so the reasons that become part of your person also are permanent. They're not an efficient cause of action. They are a dispositive cause of action, you see. And they're infused. Well, not, not, they can be. This, I'm going to get to that. <laughs> I've just been talking about habits in general. Now, the, the same thing is true of acquired habits and infused habits. Okay. Now, let's go back. Now, having said that, let's go to the difference between an infused virtue and an acquired virtue. I said yesterday that an infused moral virtue has a different mean. I, you know, uh, we talk about uh, virtue being in the mean, neither excess nor defect. Uh, so with, uh, res with respect to a standard, if we're talking about temperance, the standard is, uh, from, the, from the point of view of human reason, is health. So... Uh, you can really um, be content with one serving uh, of whatever it is for, uh, for dinner. That's good health practice, okay? And you can become a person who is not obsessively but reasonably interested in your health, right? I mean, uh, so uh, that becomes part of you, and so you don't have to say, I, I will not have the second baked potato covered with cream cheese, and and sour cream, and you know, I, you don't have to sweat strain to refuse the second potato. You just don't want it because you're the kind of person for whom a second baked potato covered in sour cream would be gross. <laughs> See, that's just who you are. Okay, be unlike you to to gorge out. See, but that's by reason. All right. Now Saint John the Baptist comes to dinner. And wearing his camel hair outfit, and you know, uh, the, the the waiter comes up and say, "Hi, my name is Claude. I'll be serving you this evening." Uh, what would you like? And he will say, "I would like some grasshoppers and wild honey, please." That's appropriate to the desert, you see, and also appropriate to standing up and saying to all the other diners, "You brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come?" I right, now, if I get up to a restaurant and I see you all there, and I get up and I say, "You brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the uh, wrath that is to come?" It's a little bit unfitting, okay? It doesn't really work. I'm, you know, if I'm John, because I don't have the mission. I haven't been called by God to tell you that the Messiah is coming, you see? Um, 
Five John the Baptist, then there's a different mean for civility, right? The mean for civility for me to say thank you, Antonio. I think I'll have the cream cheese and the salad. Uh, the mode of civility for John the Baptist is to warn you of the approaching wrath. So there's a different mean. You see, a different mean. Uh, and for him, at that situation, the appropriate thing is, thank you, I believe I'll have a second drink. For him, the second, the appropriate thing to say is, you brood of vipers who told you to flee from the wrath that was to come. It's a different mission, a different virtue, a different mean, you see? Okay. Now, um, okay. Uh, that, now, one of the things that distinguishes, uh, I mean, it's interesting, John the Baptist and I, in the same restaurant, are dealing with the same material, food and drink and conversation. Okay, we're, we're, So the, the object, if you want, of our behavior is the same. How do you behave in the face of a baked potato? Uh, how do you behave in the face of guests at a restaurant? That's the same subject matter we're dealing with. So infused and acquired virtues don't differ according to that. What they do differ according to is their purpose. What is the purpose of ordinary civility that is acquired? It's to live peacefully, St. Thomas says, or productively as a citizen of the polis, of the earthly city. Uh, a virtue, uh, an acquired virtue has as its end uh, friendship at the polis, reasonable behavior among your fellow human beings, okay? And that according to the standards of human nature, okay? So that's the goal of a virtue, to fit you to be able to live in the polis which, with an eye to the common good, as Professor Jensen said yesterday. It's, but there's a shared good here. And when we're talking about the earthly city, the polis, the behavior expected, the virtue required is according, according to that standard. That is the end of the virtue as, as acquired. The end of the virtue as infused is citizenship as well, but, the time, but this time it's citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. That cuts you the new mean, the middle ground. That shows you what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Proclamation of the kingdom, manifestation of the kingdom. And this is why... Um, as instantiated in the Beatitudes, um, if you think of the Beatitudes as a moment as, uh, as infused moral qualities by, uh, by Jesus in his disciples, this is why Jesus can say, unless your righteousness superabounds over the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the, the, your righteousness superabounds, which means that there's an excessive measure, right? Unless your righteousness superabounds, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you won't be a citizen. See, see the link between the virtue or the, the beatitude, of the behavior the Lord enjoins on us as disciples, and membership in the kingdom. That they are in fact linked. Uh, and this this explains why the beatitudes have, as they are expressed in the antitheses, have such an odd sound to them. I remember. When I was a, a, a novice, 1974 in Massachusetts, we had a, uh, a we had a priest. And we priests would go out on Sundays to take different jobs in different parishes. We and we had an old guy 
uh, an old brother, uh, father, uh, what was his name? Tiny, we called him Tiny. Um, he was huge, in fact, but we called him Tiny. Um, anyway, he didn't drive. Uh, among his many characteristics, one he didn't drive. Uh, so I, the nov one of the novices would drive him to Mass so that he could say it and then come back. So I, I happened to draw the lot uh, that Sunday, so I'm driving him. The gospel text is, uh, uh, if, you're, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. If uh, someone gives you or takes your cloak, give to him your coat as well. Someone says, walk one mile, walk two. Okay, that's the text. Well, he, he, I never, this, was, this sermon has given me joy for many, many years. Because uh, <laughs> this is what he did. He said, um, uh, brothers and sisters, we cannot always take our Lord literally. Uh, why not? Well, because, you know, we'll just think about it, he says. Just think about it. If somebody, if you're in line and some arrogant young person dashes in front of you, should you just let him have your place? You should not. If he slaps you on the right cheek, what should you do? I'll tell you what you should do. You shouldn't turn the other cheek. You should smack him right in the mouth. <laughs> That's what you should do. Why? Because we can't take our Lord literal. <laughs> and he went on in this vein. He went on and he said, if, if, and if some bum comes up to you and wants $10 to buy lunch, <laughs> should you give him the $10? You should not. You should tell that bum to get a job. <laughs> because we can't take our Lord literal. In the name of the Father. <laughs> See, now that was the homily, and I, I it has never failed to inspire me. <laughs> All these years, I mean, there's a difference between not taking our Lord literally and not taking Him at all. Yeah. <laughs> but but the, but he has a point, does he not? I mean, uh, really, there's a point. How should you behave if someone asks you for ten dollars on the uh, on the on the sidewalk? You know, I mean. Should, is it automatically that you should give him a hundred? You know, if someone asks you for ten dollars, give him a hundred. Is that, is that really? Unless your righteousness abounds by more than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It can be a little bit daunting, you know. Uh, which is why some people think of the Beatitudes as hyperbole, you know, exaggeration to make a point. It's possible to look at them that way. It's also possible to look at them the way Luther did, which is to say that he didn't, all he didn't really mean us to change our behavior, he meant us to be driven into despair. <laughs> well, what he means by that is to prepare the way for the gospel of grace, you see. Uh, you think you can refrain from murder? Well, maybe you can, but just try to avoid inward resentment. You failed, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, you failed. <laughs> Get down on your knees and ask God for mercy. See, the point is, the point is to set an impossible moral standard so that people will fail, so that they will realize they are saved not by their works but by grace. That's Luther's approach. Tolstoy turned them into ideals, okay, secular ideals for secular progress. Uh, how do we look at this? Well, I think that you can fruitfully look at the Beatitudes in terms of the contrast between acquired and infused virtues. Because some, uh, because, uh, and here the contrast is, I think, 
not between nature and supernature, you run into really interesting and fruitful but difficult conceptual problems when you try to appropriate the difference between infused and acquired virtues according to nature and supernature because you've got the problem of contrasting and then harmonizing nature and supernature, which is, uh, can be done, but which is an endeavor which is fraught with difficulty and has taxed the best theological mind of this or any age, okay? It's, it, that is possible, but very difficult. Suppose you uh, look at it, approach it from a slightly different angle, and think about it not in terms of the contrast between nature and supernature, but between now and then, then meaning the future, you see, now and then. What does uh, uh, St. Paul, Paul say about the kingdom of God? Or what did the gospel say about the kingdom of God? Uh, what time is it? The kingdom of God is both present and to come. It's not fully present. It's not fully present. It's not fully absent. It is to come and is somehow here. Okay. Now, my, um, I think that since I, my idea is that the infused moral virtues uh, serve to reveal the presence of the kingdom, uh, I think that um, since the kingdom is both present and to come, both present and absent, you need both acquired and infused virtues. You need both of them. It's something that's the source of controversy. Um, there are people who have argued that in the face of our of one end to human life, that there's not several goals, there's only one final end, as Professor Jensen says. Since that's the case, um, since there's only one final end, uh, the argument would be that there can only be one really uh, form of virtue which would be infused, see. Uh, you don't really need acquired virtues. The only people who can have acquired virtues are the pagans. For the Christians, since we have only one final end, all our virtues really need to be infused virtues. That's, uh, 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 William Madison has said that, and it's, it's, a, it's an interesting argument. But there are many, there are many, this is a controverted point, and you could spend a lot of time uh, exploring the different range of opinion on the matter. Uh, uh, what I'm interested in, in saying is that, I mean, I, I don't agree with Madison, for, you know, for, for, for just to come to the point. I, I think that actually uh, infused and acquired virtues, moral virtues, need to coexist. Not so much because of the exigencies of the relationship between nature and supernature, but because of the contrast between now and then. The kingdom, in a certain sense, is now, but even more will be then. And what an infused virtue does is manifest now the nature of the kingdom that is to come then, you see. It, uh, an infused moral virtue manifests now what is to come, the graciousness of God, the final triumph of God's kingdom. So think about, <clears throat> and I'll move on, but let's I'll just give some examples. Uh, you've got an accountant. What is his job? His job is to audit a firm, Barn Nobles and Son. Okay, so you're the auditor. You go into Barnes Nobles and Son, and you 
you look at the books and you write your report. Uh, and then, um, does that reveal the kingdom of God? Not really. I mean, not especially. I mean, it does in the sense that you exist, the books exist, God, that they wouldn't exist if God didn't create you. Diligent philosophical can move from the proof for the unaudited auditor to, to God. I suppose you could do that. But it's not really the nature of an auditing of books doesn't of itself tend to reveal the kingdom. Um, that doesn't mean it's wrong. That doesn't mean it's not good. That doesn't mean it's not uh, ordered to the common good. It is. If, if you didn't do that kind of work, then you wouldn't have financial order and the place would be chaotic. And so so it, is, it is virtuous. It is orderable to a common good. But it's the common good of the earthly city. It's hard to make that into a parable of the kingdom of God. On the other hand, um, um, the same accountant comes back and, and um, uh, the guy says, well, did you audit their books? And, and you say, no, I didn't. And why didn't you? Well, the books were such a mess and he seemed so distraught. What did you, I gazed at him compassionately. <laughs> okay. Uh, good, you, you gazed at him compassionately. That, what good did that do? Well, it's possible that it manifested the kingdom of God, you know. Uh, the, the guy who runs the books, he's a crook, you're there. Your honest face reflects horror at the, at the sadness and complacency of badly formed finances. But your smile somehow says to him, don't worry. God can reach into you and save you from your mess. Now, you didn't fully realize you were saying that, but somehow your very being communicates it. Gentleness can be, not necessarily is, but can be a vehicle by which God reveals his kingdom, you see? Um, okay. Um, an act of, so let's go to the question of a guy who's going down the street and I go back to uh, the sermon, you know, if some bum comes up to you and says, give me $10, should you give him $10? You should not. You should tell that bum to get a job. Well, that's just probably discourteous uh, and not really, like maybe that would be a venial sin. But, um, but it might be a reasonable act to say, well, why don't you go to the food bank? See, there's, there are people there who can help you with the dinner and maybe help you find shelter for the night, you see. That would be a reasonable response, uh, uh, fitted to the city of man, see. But it also, but, then, but there's, it's also possible that you would give him the $10, or, and maybe even more, 20 Why? Is that going to solve his problems? No. But it might be a gesture coming from not just your generosity, but Christ's generosity infused into you, which is able to touch the person and remind him somehow that God is near. Now, simple gestures can do that. It can, simple gestures or virtuous acts can come from a place that have the power to tell people that God is near. When you've got that, you've got an infused moral virtue. Does that make sense? That's, that's my thesis or my idea. Um, Okay, now time to move on to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, given the influence that it had on Thomas, you can't really appreciate Thomas's treatment of the gifts of the Holy Spirit without looking at St. Augustine's treatment of the same topic. Uh, St. 
Augustine's most sustained reflections occur in his Sermon of the Lord. In that work, he correlates the seven gifts of the Spirit in Isaiah with the Beatitudes. Now, some have thought this device is overly ingenious and a little <coughs> artificial, but others appreciate its central intuition. Namely, that the path of life outlined in the Beatitudes and in the sermon as a whole is impossible without the activity and support of the Holy Spirit. Um, St. Augustine's intuition was adopted commonly by the medieval writers, and as a result, spirituality was not divorced from thought about the virtues. Instead, the influence of this text on subsequent medieval thought helped bring about an integration, not a divorce, between spirituality and morality. Uh, with an attendant appreciation of the centrality of grace and gift and the whole moral life. Now, subsequent scholastic interpretation of the gifts seems to have been preoccupied with establishing their relationship with the virtues. That's the problem with the gifts. They seem to be just like the virtues. Are they different? If so, how? Now, where Augustine was synthetic, all of the virtues, for example, are made to be examples of charity. The scholastic authors are analytic, and they seek the illuminating distinguish. Twelfth uh, century saw three major views concerning the relationship between the gifts and the virtues. The first perspective was that the gifts precede the virtues. There's no... Uh, Gifts of the Spirit make virtues possible. The second major interpretation was that the gifts are, in fact, the same as the virtues. The third was that the virtues are subsequent to and superior to the virtues. But in all of these views, the core conviction was that there are moral perfections which come not as an achievement, but as a gift of the Holy Spirit a specifically moral perfection, sanctifying, which is a, the, uh, not an achievement, but a gift. Now, when we remember that uh, Peter Lombard defined virtue as a good quality of the mind by which one loves rightly, which no one uses badly, and which God alone produces in man, distinguishing virtues uh, since they are gifts of God from the gifts of the Holy Spirit per se becomes a little difficult. Various suggestions were offered. Some said that the gifts can serve to conform man directly to Christ. I like that. The sevenfold gift of the Spirit descends first of all on Christ and only through Christ on the rest of us. If I were doing my own theology I would, of the gifts of the Spirit, I would start there. It's a good idea. Um, Others say that their role is to free man from the effects of sin, um, the night, the various nights, uh, which are mortifying and which also conform to some of uh, Professor Jensen's intuition, where you go, you know, about St. John of the Cross, where uh, the purifications or the nights tend to release us from attachments that are uh, 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 both symptoms of and, and effects of sin, you see. Uh, but the agreement centered on the central idea that the gifts of the Spirit 
are more receptive and passive in structure than the virtues which are directly oriented to human action. So Thomas um, begins his, uh, his, first, his first major treatment is in his commentary on Isaiah. It's brief, but he does address the gifts there, of course. And then he develops this in his uh, commentary on the sentences. In his commentary on Isaiah, you can see him insisting on a perfection given to human action which exceeds the mode of human action. In his commentary on the sentences, Thomas argues that the gifts are placed above the virtues because they perfect human action according to a higher mode. He distinguishes virtues from gifts because virtue's mode of operation is according to the limitations of the human condition, while the mode of the operation of the gifts is not. So Thomas begins to establish his own position by identifying himself with those who claim that the gifts are given to elicit higher or more noble acts than those of the virtues. So he writes in the sentences, virtues can be broadly and meaningfully spoken of in connection with every reality insofar as they have their own operation in which they are perfected by their own perfected powers. But when we speak of virtues in the context of moral discussion, we understand human virtue as that which perfects execution precisely of a good human act. So, uh, that's the difference. Uh, according to the sentences, when uh, a gift of, of the Spirit operates according to a divine mode of operation, it acts like God acts, whereas when a virtue, you're talking about a virtue, even an infused moral virtue, you're talking about something that acts the way a human being acts. Now, think about, now he, St. Thomas gives examples of this in comparing the gift of faith, the virtue of faith as a virtue and the gifts of knowledge and understanding. Uh, human reason operates typically according to a discursive mode, okay? You begin with premises, you end up in a conclusion. Reason, and uh, faith is a virtue of the mind, it perfects human reason but it doesn't do away with the ordinary structures of human reason, and so one of the things we do about faith is we think about it. We appropriate it, we, we plumb it, we, we examine it, we argue within it, we argue without it. We, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of stuff for the mind to do uh, to come to grips with revelation, and in fact, if we don't come to grips with revelation, we eventually lose it. Anti-intellectualism is deadly in the life of faith. You have a refusal of the mind to encounter or deal with revelation, you'll gradually produce more and more distorted versions of revelation so that at the end of the day, no rational person could accept it. See? So, there is a, a very important role for human reason in the gift of faith and the virtue of faith. But, this doesn't uh, bring us to the very heart of it. Uh, he would say that there are. Uh, we need to really know God as God knows God, you have to surpass the human mode of understanding, which is discursive, to approach it in something that is more a matter of intellectus, intuition, a penetrating sight which surpasses normal cognitional bounds. Okay? 
connects that with the gift of wisdom. Uh, uh, wisdom as an intellectual virtue considers reality in its highest causes. Okay, and you can do this, you know, metaphysical reflection. You can, you can, uh, after much labor, approach uh, things according to their highest cause. But the gift of wisdom for Saint Thomas. Uh, gives a knowledge by connaturality. That is to say, you are conformed to the highest cause. You don't simply know the highest cause. You're its friend. Okay? Uh, not a, do you know the first cause? Well, I certainly do. He's my father. Uh, see, uh, that kind of uh, familiarity with uh, the highest cause causes a conformity to the highest cause, you see, so that your own, uh, you become, you in a way become the, the, secondary standard, you see? Because you're conformed to highest causes, you become like them and become your mind becomes connaturalized, you see? Does that make sense? But anyway, that's, that's a higher gift, you see. Uh, it doesn't cancel the work of human reason and come to grips with revelation, but it means that you, you must yield to other modes of intuition which give you, by connaturality, a first-hand acquaintance with God himself. It's the difference between knowing about the Lord and knowing the Lord, you see. Okay. Um, now, um, all right. Now, Thomas goes on to describe, why do we need the gifts? Well, why aren't the virtues enough? Well, he says that the... Um, that we need the gifts to heal the intrinsic limitations of human deliberation as it applies to human action. He contrasts the normal process of deliberation, which is intrinsically conjectural, which depends upon what often happens in human affairs, compares that contingency with the certitude that being directly led by the Spirit affords in the gift of knowledge. So the major emphasis in the treatment of the gifts in the sentences is upon locating the distinctive mode of their activity. They transcend human modes of action. They are distinguished from virtues insofar as virtues, even the infused virtues, operate in a human mode whereas the gifts of the Spirit lend a divine mode of activity to human action. Now, um, we want to go to um, the Prima Secundae. The questions surrounding the differences between the treatment of the gifts of the Spirit in the sentences and the treatment found in the Summa and the Prima Secundae has provoked long debate. There's no agreement here. All agree that at least the emphasis differs. The sentences stress the mode of the operation of the gifts, but the Suprema Secundae in the Summa puts less emphasis on this. It largely abandons the use of the terms mode and measure, and it places greater emphasis on the gifts uh, as the explanation for rather than the description of, I'll say that again, uh, the gifts in the Prima Secundae really function more as an explanation for, rather than a description of, our actions achieving our final end of union with God. I would say that 
in a very sketchy form, the sentences focuses largely phenomenological, largely a matter of description of what it's like to be moved by a gift of the Holy Spirit, whereas uh, the, 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 the prima secundae uh, is more interested in um, explaining how it is that the gifts uh, are needed to complement the virtues to bring us to our happy end. Okay. St. Thomas says, uh, he wants to say in the Prima Secundae that what is distinctive of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is that they, it's not they are the content of the inspiration, they are the mode of being which allows us to respond to inspiration. See the difference? Uh, what, uh, so I'm, I'm walking down the street and I see a crowd of people and I, and I know that God wants me to speak to them. People of God, I say, do you not know that God has come to save you? This is what I have now moved to be a street evangelist. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the spirit of God that is truly moving. Let's assume for the sake of argument that I'm really moved by God to do this. That this is for real and not just some fruitcake, okay? Um, so I say, people of God, the, the Lord has told me to warn you of a coming judgment, all right? Uh, where is the gift of the spirit? Is it in the in the content of what I've said or the experience of what I've said uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand no I would argue that uh, St. Thomas would say in the Prima Secundae that what makes the gift of the spirit here is your receptivity to the revelation see you have to be able to if, if you're moved by a higher cause you need a higher principle of response to the cause okay and, and none of you, this is what happens when you get old, you, all your cultural movie references are obsolete. Um, but do any of you ever see Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers go to work? Anybody, anybody seen them? No. This is so depressing. <laughs> well, let me demonstrate. <laughs> Fred Astaire was a great dancer, all right? And he, he, could, he was in top hat and tails, and he would do this, and he would do that. And he, and he had Ginger Rogers with him, who was also gorgeous, and, and could do this and do that. And she followed him, you know? She fo could follow his every move on the dance floor. He, he would bend, she would bend. He would bow, she would bow. And they were <clears throat> Now, she always said that uh, he, he got unfair advantage and top billing, which was unjust, because she did everything he did, but backwards <laughs> and in heels. <laughs> okay, so she really deserved a lot more money for what she did. She, it was much harder. But the funny thing is, she had a perfection that allowed her to follow him, see? She was, her back, her limbs, she could, she could follow him. That meant that she had a greater perfection in her, see? Now, my dad, on the other hand, uh, he was, uh, was his wedding day, one of the great stories of his wedding day was this. Um, his, uh, uh, my grandmother, his mother, uh, you know, you have a father-daughter dance, you know, at the wedding, and you have a mother-son dance, too, right? 
Well, my grandmother drags him out on the floor. My father is not Fred Astaire. <laughs> but anyway, she drags him out, and they have the, the mother-son dance at their wedding. Anyway, they, they endured that, and then they sat down, and my grandmother leaned over to her friends and said, it's like dragging a set bag of potatoes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, can you imagine dragging a bag, you know, big bat sack of potatoes around? I mean, that's, that's immobile, you see. But on the other hand, Ginger Rogers, I mean, when you dance with Ginger, it's not a sack of potatoes. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a living art form, okay? Well, that's what the gifts of the Holy Spirit do. They make you more like Ginger Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> they can, so that you can, can follow the Lord. You see, the Lord says, follow me, but, you know, we're clumsy people, you know? Uh, we, we're apt to mess it up, you know? So... Uh, how do we respond? The more able you are to respond to him uh, by the perfection of the gifts, the, the more completely, you know, you can serve as a vehicle of revelation of the holiness of God, of the goodness of God. You see? All right. So that's that's the difference there between the prima secunda and secunda secunda. They, they, he talks about the gifts as a... Um, a a capacity to respond to inspiration. Now, this, uh, he locates the sources of the gifts of the Spirit and the powers of human action. You know, intellectual powers, affective powers, and so forth. That, that's his basic principle of division. In the, in the, in the uh, commentary on the sentences, it's, he discusses the gifts of the Spirit according to different ways of life. Okay? Lay, you know, priesthood, religious life, being a vision, uh, uh, according to, you know, basically offices. Around. But in the, prim, in the uh, uh, prima secundae, as I say, he discusses the gifts of the spirit, locating them in, in human powers, sensitive powers or intellectual or volitional powers. Uh, in the secunda secundae, he locates and attaches the gifts of the spirit to specific virtues, okay? That's what he does. He, he attaches the gifts to the virtues. And uh, uh, what, one, one quick lesson to draw from this is that St. Thomas, in fact, changed his mind. He, he rearranged the, uh, in a, the, his treatment of the gifts of the Spirit. You can see him tinkering around with his own work even more than you usually can. So there's evidence of change, revision, and so on in, in his treatment of the gifts. Uh, each of these approaches has something of merit to it. Um, we talked earlier about the virtue, the, uh, locating the gifts, first of all, in Christ, and I think that reaches easily to uh, the Sermon on the Mount, preaching in the Beatitudes, revealing the kingdom of God. I think that the gifts of the Spirit are given to the Messiah, the Christ, first of all, and they are given to him to help him reveal the Father. Okay, and I think that remains permanent. Uh, also, the gifts of the Spirit are in, located in not just the Christ, but in the powers of human nature. I think Thomas is right there, because it's human nature as a whole that has been raised up and divinized by grace and made apt to receive inspiration or movement by the Spirit. I also think it's true to say that the gifts of the Spirit allow us to respond to divine reasons. When we've got a... a uh, 
and infuse virtue, we are responding to our reason, uh, and that's the proximate source of the act, even though our act as a, uh, in a human mode is susceptible of manifesting the reign of God in its own way. But and I think when we're talking about a gift of the Spirit, what we're talking about is our is really divine reasons at the root of our action. Not our proximate human reasons at the root of our action, but even more divine reasons, divine providence as the causal explanation or the root of our act. Which is why that we don't ever really fully understand an action of ours that comes from the Holy Spirit, a gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't really plummet step because the principle, I mean, we are the author of the act. It is our human act that's perfected. But our human act is, in the gift of the Holy Spirit, patient of specifically divine reasons. See? Divine providence. This goes back to what I was saying about what time it is. You see, is, it the, it, is the kingdom to be manifest as present or as future? Uh, so you may give the $10 and that could be an act of human virtue, just generosity. Give the $10, it could be an act of, of impatience. Get out of my face, I don't want to look at you anymore. Just take the money and go. Giving the same $10 could be uh, an infused act of uh, generosity, a patient of revealing in hidden form the presence of the kingdom. It could be an action of the Holy Spirit a gift, uh, gift of the Holy Spirit, in which case you may not have any real clear reason why you gave the ten bucks, you just thought that you should. And then the giving the ten bucks uh, then manifests, uh, uh, is, a, is a vehicle of a grace for the person who gets the ten bucks. So the same action can be an acquired virtue, it could be a vi an action of a vice, could be an act of an acquired virtue, could be an action of an infused virtue, or could be a manifestation of the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are many reasons for acts, but when we are led more and more by the Holy Spirit, we are patient of and responsive to divine reasons. Does that make sense? Okay, that's all I have to say. Thank you very much.